It is so good to be with you this morning on this Resurrection Day. I think it is good for us to um, also thank the Lord for the many blessings that we experience. And one of those blessings happens around us here on, on the stage, the, the team who leads us in song, uh, behind the scenes, what's happening back in the sound booth, what happened in the fellowship hall to prepare for coffee and and snacks, all of those things, uh, we want to pause and realize that the Lord is using his people to serve the body, and we are so thankful for the way in which this body serves one another. We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, and so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 7. This is where we happen to be in the Lord's providence as we are working through the letter to the Hebrews. And as you're finding that passage this morning, I wonder when you think of resurrection, where your mind goes. I hope as we have been singing and pointing our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that is where it goes. In the Bible, we have the the historicity, the eyewitness testimony that there was a new bodily life given to Jesus Christ after a period of being dead. This was not just kind of like resuscitation. God raised his son with a transformed physical body, a body no longer subject to death and decay. Think about that for a moment. A body no longer subject to death or decay forever. In our passage this morning, there is a description of what Christ possesses. You're going to hear it. The the power of an indestructible life. Everyone else in this life that we experience, who we may depend upon, who we may be inspired by, or maybe trust in, every one of those people has been or will be conquered by the grave, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. What is so interesting is that the author of this letter to the Hebrews explains what Jesus' resurrection means in terms of his priesthood. And for some of us, that category of priesthood may seem a little foreign. But we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 7, and I pray that it actually sheds light on the importance, the necessity of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before reading the passage, I want to remind us of where we have been In chapter 5 of Hebrews, the author introduces Jesus as the great high priest, a priest who has passed through the heavens and is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was appointed by God to be a priest forever, And in chapter 5, he introduces after the order of Melchizedek. But if you remember, 
He says, I have much to say about this, but you are dull of hearing. And so he does not return to the subject of his high priesthood in the order of Melchizedek until the very end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7, where we find ourselves today. And so here the last verse of chapter, of chapter 6, and then please follow along as I read into chapter 7 through verse 19. Well, let's start at verse 19, actually, of chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. This is the description of Melchizedek. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in, in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is written, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a, formal, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Hear the word of the Lord. 
When we come to the topic of Melchizedek, I can only imagine that it prompts many questions. Who is this obscure character that is introduced to us really only three times in Scripture? You get an introduction to him in Genesis chapter 14. Then many, many, many years go by, and he's mentioned again in Psalm 110. And then many, many years go by, and our author to the letter of Hebrews mentions him a third time. That's it, though. That's the only information that we are given about this, this king of righteousness, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. I've been trying to think of the best way to begin, and several, several years ago, D.A. Carson, while talking about Melchizedek, encouraged the listeners and those who would want to study Melchizedek to spend a lot of time focused on King David, because King David is the one who wrote Psalm 110. If you don't believe me, Jesus actually tells us that as he's interacting with the Pharisees. So David wrote Psalm 10. David is the one who has the, the second mention of this Melchizedek. And so I want us to actually focus in and think about this king of Israel, King David. Now, for the kings of Israel, this was really important, given by God according to his law, that this is Deuteronomy chapter 17. The king is told to take God's law and write for himself in a book a copy of God's law. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue, continue long in his kingdom. And so this was what was told that if you're a king of Israel, this is what you are to do. And so think with me, King David is obeying God and doing this very thing. He is writing out a copy of the law for himself. He is meditating upon God's law. Now, David begins his rule in Hebron, but soon after moves towards Jerusalem. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. At that time, think about this. He's, he's copying the law. He is meditating. He is studying it. He is in Jerusalem, and in 2 Samuel 6, we're told that at this point in the Davidic dynasty, in his reign, the Ark of the Covenant is also brought in to Jerusalem. And so for the very first time in the history of God's people, the priesthood and the king are in the same place in Jerusalem. And David, as he is writing the Pentateuch, for example, he's writing Genesis out, reflecting upon it, meditating upon it. You can only imagine him in that situation when all of this has come together in Jerusalem, reflecting on Genesis chapter 14. That's the first reference of Melchizedek. So the context of Genesis 14. 
there were four kings who formed what would be called like a, a raiding army, and they would move, in this case, they were moving south, and basically as a, as a team of four, taking over villages and towns, and as they're making their way, they come upon the, the area that Abram is living in, and, and his, his uh, nephew Lot. So he con- the, these four kings come upon this region of the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and they have aligned with three other kings. So there's five kings here. Four kings are coming down, and there's a battle that ensues. The four kings beat the five kings. And we're told in Genesis chapter 14, kind of the, the flow of what happens in verses 11 and 12, it tells us, so the enemy, those four kings, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, Abraham, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So Abram, Abraham, then heads out with 318 trained men, and he defeats these four kings, takes the spoil, rescues his nephew Lot, and then brings all of that back. And so one of the original five kings, the king of Sodom, he comes out to work a deal with Abraham. So right in the middle of this, what seems to be a, a, a deal being proposed by the king of Sodom, we hear that the king of Salem, Melchizedek, pops up, it seems, out of nowhere. We've really heard nothing about him up, at the, up until this point in Genesis, and the text simply says this, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. Then he, he seems to just disappear. It's as if he had no beginning or end. Then we're, we're right back to this exchange between the king of Sodom. He, he's trying to, to have an allegiance with Abram, Abraham, and Abraham rejects it. And by contrast, Abraham willingly gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything and even receives a blessing by him. Okay, that's Genesis 14. David writing this out, meditating upon it, thinking back to David who wrote Psalm 110, reflecting on the fact that this strange encounter between Abram, Abraham, and Melchizedek means something. There's a a reason why we're given the, the details that we're given and the details that are excluded are excluded by God for a reason. And so he's reflecting upon this and think about David's kingship for a minute. The one he seceded was King Saul, remember? In 1 Samuel 13, King Saul did something very grievous. He tried to function as a priest king. He tried to offer sacrifices instead of waiting as he was told to wait by Samuel, the prophet. He did not wait. And what happened? He, his kingdom was removed from him. David's reflecting on what, what had just recently transpired with Saul, but he's looking way back in Genesis 14 and realizing there was a time where there was a priest king. 
I wonder if there ever could be a priest king again. In Psalm 110, it's really divided into two stanzas. The first stanza is a divine declaration creating the king to come. The second stanza is a divine oath which creates a priest. And so you see this priest-king figure. And we hear in verse 4 of Psalm 110 that our author of Hebrews also quotes, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The king and priest are the same person. And both stanzas show this coming descendant of David, the coming king priest, as one who defeats and conquers the enemies of God. That's all in Psalm 110. Now just think about the cross and the resurrection. All the enemies of the people of God, namely sin, our greatest enemy, the priest king, the one promised in in Psalm 110, would come and defeat and conquer the enemies of God's people. How amazing this portrait of redemption that starts with just a, a, a dim shadow in Genesis 14, developed a little bit more in Psalm 110, and then we get to Hebrews chapter 7, and the author to this letter, the author of this letter to the Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit, really gives us some good exegesis on the information that has been given to us briefly in Genesis 14 in Psalm 110. So now let's look at Hebrews chapter 7. You're like, whoa, we just got to Hebrews 7? Don't worry, don't worry. The first three verses. So first, the author really, in verse 1, tells us everything that we've already been told through Genesis 14. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Okay, we, we heard that in Genesis 14. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Okay, we, we know that he tithed to this king priest. And then we're told he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. I hope you, you heard Salem, Jerusalem. Many believe, and rightly so, that king of Salem, that location is where David would later rule and reign in Jerusalem. That is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The author wants us to get a sense of the greatness of Melchizedek. Even in introducing his name and spending time thinking about king of righteousness king of peace. He wants us to think about that. Where have we heard a king of righteousness, a king of peace? All the foreshadowing in the Old Testament pointing to one who is even superior to Melchizedek. But this unique name, when we think about peace, th- think, hear this as well. 
peace, shalom, means wholeness. Everything rightly ordered beneath the Lord. This king rules over this peace, this, this rightly ordered everything beneath the Lord. This king of righteousness, this king of peace will fulfill what, what all of us long to see. Where we live in a place where many of us are grateful, yes, to be citizens of this country, we all ache and groan realizing that is, this is not the end. This is not the way things should be. And all throughout the old, it is always pointing to the one who would make all things that are broken right. There is only one who is truly righteous and one who can actually provide the peace that is mentioned here. This isn't just peace like I'm going to say hi and smile when I see you kind of peace. This is a peace that reconciles those who are far from the King of kings and Lord of lords because of sin. Those who are rebels can actually experience being brought back, forgiven, redeemed by the one that this is pointing to, the true king of righteousness and king of peace. What we see in Melchizedek is also that this priest king lacks a lineage or genealogy. Verse 3 is really important. The author to the letter of Hebrews, he's giving theological weight to what is actually left out here. Okay, so track with me for a moment. There is such a thing as a good argument of silence if those people who are hearing the argument expect to hear a lot of noise. And so what I mean by this is when you read through Genesis, anyone and everyone who matters belongs to some lineage or genealogy. So-and-so begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so. That's what gives credit, credentials or credit to this person being of importance. And in Genesis, there is a complete absence of any lineage for Melchizedek. And, and this is actually important for us to, to think again about. With all genealogy, there's a beginning of life, who produced who, and an end of days. And then this guy shows up out of what seems to be nowhere, and then poof, he's gone, and there's what seems to be no beginning or end of his days. His priesthood was, in a sense, perpetual. And I want you to hear these words are important. In the likeness, resembling, those are really important. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so it's better to read these words in the context of the Levitical priesthood. Because in the Levitical priesthood, there was a starting point and an ending point. So in Numbers chapter 8, we're told at the age of 25, that is a beginning point for a Levitical priest, and at the age of 50, that's the ending point. The fact that there's no genealogy and no beginning or end date placed around Melchizedek is to help us understand that as long as he lived, his priesthood kept going. It didn't have a stopping point like the Levitical priesthood. And that's why in verse 8 of our passage this morning, it contrasts Melchizedek with the Levitical priesthoods. The Levites, out of the, the lineage or heritage of, of Aaron, represented a dying priesthood, a mortal one. Melchizedek, on the other hand, 
He represents a living one. His kept going. And so he resembles an eternal priest king who lives forever. And so in the Old Testament, we see many patterns and symbols, and they're used to point forward until we get to the substance or the reality. And everything that is mentioned about Melchizedek being superior to Abraham, superior to the Levitical priesthood, it is all pointing forward to the fulfillment, the ultimate consummation or substance of this priest-king whose reign and rule is eternal. It is without end. It is forever. Jesus Christ is the reality itself. And so Melchizedek foreshadows the Savior. With Melchizedek, we can, we can be affirmed of this. Someone brought Melchizedek into being and then deliberately made him similar, resembling the Son of God. That someone was God. God raised him up for that specific time in history to come up on the scene in Genesis 14 with Abraham and have that whole interaction and then be gone. And then for David, inspired by the Spirit of God, to record as he's contemplating and reflecting on God's word. Psalm 110. God gave him the name, the King of Righteousness, and the role to be King of, of Salem and priest of the Most High God. And what we see in verses 4 through 10 in our passage is really the author continuing to make this case that Melchizedek is greater than Levi's house and even greater than Abraham's house. And so just think about this for a moment. And the, the lineage, the genealogy actually helps us understand this argument that Melchizedek is the greater, blessing the lesser. So you've got the Levitical priesthood out of Aaron's house. We know that they came from Abraham, so you've got them here, and they receive tithes from the people of Israel. And if they receive tithes and they're out of the genealogy or lineage of Abraham, and we saw in Genesis 14 that the patriarch, the one who has been given all the promises of God, Abraham, he is the one that gives tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is the one that blesses Abraham. For some of us, we can't really scratch the surface on the importance of the patriarch doing this, looking at Melchizedek as the greater, but it is of huge importance when you understand that that it all is actually pointing and helping us understand the superiority of Christ, the priest-king. Because Melchizedek was in the likeness or resembled the Son of God. He pointed to how great and how awesome Christ really is. Now, starting in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. What I want you to hear from this 
part of our passage is the Levitical priesthood was inadequate to obtain the perfection needed for sinners to truly be reconciled and made right before a holy and right God. The old covenant was based on a sacrificial system that needed to be made again and again. And it showed that the sacrifices were were necessary because of all the sin, all the sinners who had transgressed the, the law of God. However, the sacrifices of the old covenant could not accomplish the righteousness of the law effectively. That is why when you think about the whole Levitical system, the the ceremonial system, it was a a type. It was typology or temporary in its value. It was pointing, again, pointing to something else, something needed. As long as those sacrifices were offered by the Levitical priests, the sacrifices recalled the requirements of the law and let the people know that it had not yet been satisfied. So since sin still existed, the law actually weighed on the members of the Old Covenant as a curse. If the Levitical priesthood itself could obtain perfection, there would have been no need for another one to come. Melchizedek is so important in understanding this thread that there was one who was needed who would be both priest and king, who was not out of the line of Aaron, not out of that genealogy. Melchizedek would not really have needed to appear in Genesis 14, and the reference to Melchizedek in Psalm 110 would really be stripped of its meaning if the ceremonial system, the 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 Levitical priesthood could have actually obtained perfection. It would have actually made no sense for there to be this man, Melchizedek, showing up on the scene and then coming up again in Psalm 110 if if there was actually satisfaction of God's holy wrath in the ceremonial law. It simply pointed. It is under this law that Christ was born. And it is the same law that Christ fulfilled by his obedience, perfectly perfectly fulfilling it. And it is actually the curse of the law which Christ endured by his death. Christ accomplished the old covenant perfectly. So please hear me. The old covenant was designed to lead everyone and everything to Christ, not to look for life in the law. The law could never bring life. Verse 13, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The author of the Hebrews demonstrates the newness of Christ's work by showing the interweaving of priesthood and kingship in one person. And through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we actually see that that come to fulfillment. So when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we see what he has accomplished in his life, death, burial, and resurrection is something that the Levitical priesthood could never have accomplished, but simply was a sign or shadow pointing to what could be accomplished through the Lord. Something infinitely superior qualifies Jesus for this position. And this is where we get to that phrase, by the power of the indestructible life. Not through his lineage or genealogy. That's not what qualifies him to be our great high priest. To be the one who can actually take away the sins of the world fully and finally. So it's not his lineage through the tribe of Levi. No, we actually see that he is a descendant of David through the tribe of Judah. What qualifies him is the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead. And so by virtue of his resurrection, Jesus is forever. His priesthood is an enduring one. The contrast, the Levitical priesthood, they would come up on the scene at 25. They could not last. At 50, they they would complete their service. That was all to understand that this is not forever. This is pointing. This is temporary. This is a type of what's to come that is forever. His priesthood is an enduring one like Melchizedek's was. But in a far, far greater way, Jesus has now, because of the resurrection, put on immortality. In him, nothing can change. His work cannot be undone. It is final. It is finished. What he proclaimed and shouted from the cross. And so perfection couldn't come by Aaron's priesthood. It had to come in another way. And that is clearly and finally through the resurrected king. Our king priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has opened the way to God. He introduces the better hope through which, according to our passage, we draw near to God. So because of Jesus' priesthood, this means that sinners who deserve death because of their sin, those who have repented and believed upon Christ can now draw near to God Most High. That description by Melchizedek in Genesis 14, the creator of heaven and earth, holy and righteous, this God has made a way for those who are unclean and guilty, to be made clean, justified, and brought into right relationship with him. And it is through the death, burial, and resurrection of this priest king, who once resurrected now rules and reigns and intercedes at the right hand of the Father for those whom his blood purchased. Jesus came to keep the law for us. Everywhere we disobeyed, he obeyed. He came to offer the better sacrifice. His blood actually atones for our sins. When we hear this big word, he is our propitiation, or he has made propitiation, he is the only one who could actually satisfy the wrath of God. 
what is due us for eternity because of our sin, Christ, our substitute, bore our curse upon him. He is our propitiation. He has satisfied the wrath of God so that we who were guilty now have been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. His work actually perfects our conscience such that we do not need to fear God. We now can enter into the presence of God. We can actually now come into the presence of God because of the work of Christ, our priest-king, with confidence as true worshipers because of him, because of what he has done. And so when you celebrate Jesus' resurrection, one thing you should be celebrating is that you now, because he lives and intercedes forever, you now can draw near to God. After this discourse on Jesus' priesthood, we see this kind of come to a climax in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, and this main exhortation, please hear it, let us then draw near with a true heart in full assurance, in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, the world doesn't have this access to God. If you hear, oh, well, all roads lead to God, please know that that is not scripture. That is not true. There is only one road that leads to God, and it is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the only way to the Father. Let us then draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Those who belong to the resurrected Christ have access to the Father. And so God Most High declares to all, draw near to me through my Son. He is the great high priest. Draw near to me. This really is the closing invitation this morning. Draw near to God through Christ, our great high priest. Draw near in confession and repentance and prayer and trust and praise. Christ is the one who says, come to me and I will not cast you out because Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let us pray. Father, what glorious good news that you have provided through your Son. Because of Christ's indestructible life, we have an indestructible hope, a living hope, because of our resurrected King, Priest, the Lord Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Father, may our hearts be stirred up this morning as we reflect upon the resurrection. 
May this not just be one day out of the year that we reflect on the importance of the resurrection. It is the only reason why we have hope. Because you raised your son from the dead, and he is alive and ruling and reigning at your right hand, and interceding for those whom he loves, we have a living hope. May we be encouraged. May we cry out in joy and express the good news to the ends of the earth this day because Christ is risen. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.